Behind the Bite podcast is part of a network of podcasts that are good for the world. Check out podcasts like the Full of Shit podcast, After the First Marriage podcast, and Eating Recovery Academy over at practiceofthepractice.com backslash network. Welcome to Behind the Bite podcast. This podcast is about the real life struggles women face with food, body image, and weight. We're here to help heal, inspire, and create better, healthier lives. Welcome. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show if you're returning, and welcome to the show if this is your first time. So one of the reasons I started the podcast, if any of you know, if you're returning, is that I wanted to bring more information about eating disorders, body image, and just more information in general to the public about all that's going on on social media and just bring awareness, um, give the right information. Because I think there's a lot of really wrong information. I think there's a lot of erroneous myths. I think that... Um, you know, the more we can talk about the realities of eating disorders and um, really be open and vulnerable and discuss things um, that we're all going through or really struggling with, then the more normal um, people can feel when they're going through things themselves and the less scary things are going to feel um, to each of us if we decide we want to open up and share, you know, our own stories and own struggles. And, and I think it'll open up doors for people to seek help um, or even to open up to loved ones and family and friends um, about things. Because I think there's a lot of, uh, it, it can be scary to open up and share when you're going through something. Maybe you feel like you're going to be judged or maybe you feel like you're the only one going through something. And so I really appreciate when I have guests on here. Um, who are going to bring information or going to share some things that maybe you don't know about, or maybe, you know, open your mind to some things and maybe empower you. So that's the guest we have today. Um, She's here. She's going to share a lot of great information. Maybe you know some of it, maybe you don't. Um, But you know what? I just kind of want to jump in and uh, hopefully you can learn some things or, you know, maybe you'll hear something that kind of inspires you. So with that, uh, Serena Nangia is a longtime advocate for eating disorder recovery and the host of the Body Activism podcast and founder of The Body Activists. Serena has spent close to a decade building expertise on the way body image, media, and eating disorders affect people's daily lives. She is a frequent public speaker on the issue of fat phobia and actively works to elevate diverse voices of people of color and fat people. Serena's inspiration comes from her sister, Ellen, who struggled with an eating disorder for over a decade and is now in long-term recovery. Well, Serena, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So, you know, just like to get the audience to know who you are. And um, so if you wouldn't mind just kind of sharing a little bit about like who you are and your background and how you got to this place in your life on being on a social platform and doing all that you're doing. Yeah, I I really appreciated um, you allowing me to come on. I, my name is Serena Nangia. I use she, her pronouns. I kind of like to um, just mention a few of my identities before I start talking about things, especially on podcasts people can't necessarily see. Um, 
And so I identify as fat. I live in a fat body. Um, however, it doesn't apply to like everybody who, not everybody identifies in that way, even if they live in a larger body. Um, I'm queer, happy pride month this June currently. <laughs> um, I am biracial, half white, half Indian. And um, sometimes I feel like I'm white presenting. I'm, you know, I, I think I hold some privilege in that way. And, um, and I, I also am the older sister of an eating disorder survivor. So my sister Ellen is kind of part of where my work in the eating disorder field started. When I was in high school, I was experiencing body image issues and a confused identity and feeling, I think, some effects of weight stigma and fat phobia, which I'll talk about in a second, um, and just feeling a little excluded. And even though on the outside, I seemed very bubbly and um, reserved at some times, but I became more bubbly um, as I got older. So I was in high school and I joined this club called Rebel, which was the start of everything for me. I, um, it's a peer, or, peer education organization that at the time was focused on in high schools and middle schools, having people um, use research, cur research curriculum, as well as their personal experiences to discuss among youth um, and among and within our schools about education on eating disorders, um, body image, media literacy, and all these important topics that I don't think we talk about enough um, at a young age. And so I was in that club. I started in junior year and then I went into senior year and found out that my younger sister Ellen had developed an eating disorder and that she had actually been struggling with it since fifth grade, since she was 10 years old. Um, I like to mention, um, my parents are healthcare practitioners and though they noticed, and I noticed some important factors of like finding out that she, that Ellen had an eating disorder, it took quite a long time for us. You know, we didn't even as healthcare practitioners, my dad's a doctor and my mom was trained as a nurse. Like even then it took a long time for them to notice because as we know, eating disorders, um, we can't always tell from the outside and eating disorders mm -hmm. can come in people in all types of bodies. Um, and, and Ellen was and is a successful human being that was president of her senior class and was very good academically and had a huge and big social life, but at the same time, underneath it all felt um, like she wasn't worthy and didn't feel comfortable in her body, um, felt like people were, you know, teasing her um, and, and people might have been teasing her, but we've talked about, Ellen has obviously given me permission to talk about her story because um, I wouldn't do so otherwise, but she, you know, one of the triggers for her eating disorder um, that ramped up in eighth grade was a feeling of like she was being teased and she looking back, she doesn't even know if it was a real, you know, someone actually teasing her, but it was interpreted that way because of how she already felt about herself. And um, 
So I just start out, you know, I started out kind of as a loved one of someone who had an eating disorder. Ellen's now in full recovery and um, studying to be a doctor. She'll be one of, um, so medical doctors, uh, there are only 6% of residency programs that require eating disorder training. And so mm -hmm. I think of Ellen going to is going to be one of those six percent just because of her lived experiences um depending on where she goes to school of course and training that will change but um and she's doing well and so I but at the time I felt lost as many people who are family members of of people with eating disorders feel and I really didn't know what to do um and so instead of doing much at the time, I kind of ended up focusing on myself. And I went into college and um, was just trying to survive college as a, as a student. I um, met a ton of people who had eating disorders or who um, were currently in the middle of one or had to leave school to go to treatment. Um, and feeling the sense of community that I, um, or wanting the sense of community that I had at the club in high school, I decided to found the club, uh, the first collegiate chapter of that club at my college in DC. And um, through that was really where my activism story and advocacy story started. I was able to um, redirect a lot of the feelings of guilt and um, confusion and angst about not having helped, been able to help my sister as much as I wished I had um, and channel that into helping others because at that time my sister was starting to get into recovery. Um, and it's often easier to help other people than help those closest to you. Um, I think is something I found in advocacy. It's, it's a lot easier to have hard conversations with people who are um, you're not close to than the people who you are, because at least this is my, you know, my view. Ellen and I only sat down about a year ago and had this conversation about her eating disorder. Um, and it took so long because it's a really sensitive conversation to have with um, someone you know and someone who feels responsible I felt responsible uh, not for her eating disorder but for just being the older sister and not being able to catch it earlier even though it wasn't my responsibility um anyway <laughs> wow you know as you're talking you know if anyone out there is listening and could relate to what you're going through right and I think that if we often don't talk about the family members experiences we often talk um you know at least on this podcast too you know I have more people sharing on here about the experiences they went through with their own eating disorder and it's not as often we hear from the siblings um or the parents or the loved ones who are walking the walk parallel to someone who's going through it and you know that feeling of guilt you had I just I wonder where that came from where that feeling of responsibility that you were expressing came from because, you know, I mean, as someone myself who had an eating disorder and is recovered, like I'm just thinking, gosh, there's 
nobody in this planet that I could even think back and go, it was them or like they should have done something. Right. So like, I'm just wondering like, wow, that's a big burden that you carried. That's that's such a psychologist question to ask. I appreciate your, (laughs) your, um, intuitiveness and like thinking about that question um I mean I've been in therapy for a long time so I know why I felt that way and and I think it's true of many people who are older siblings um I also was like a third parent um slash second mom to my siblings just I I have younger siblings that are triplets and Ellen is one of the triplets um and my mom has been sick for a while and my dad was working a lot and while they were both there for us very much um I think I started to feel some sense of responsibility for the well-being of my siblings and um that's like the deeper root of everything but Mm -hmm. as I you know got to know a lot more people in recovery and understand eating disorders um scientifically and like emotionally better of course there's nothing that necessarily I could have done Mm -hmm. or um that would have helped I was there for Ellen as much as I could have been but I think just being feeling almost parent-like and feeling like gosh I I'm so glad she's okay but like there are like thousands and thousands of millions of people who don't survive eating disorders and that's kind of where my heart goes to is like thank god Helen is okay and now what um so that's like kind of where my you know activism starts coming in but it's definitely been a driving factor my younger sister having an eating disorder and it's what I talk about when I am in on advocacy days with the eating disorders coalition or um talking to people and wanting them to really understand the true um impact that having an eating disorder can have on a person's life and those in their community um is like you can say as many facts as you want like one person dies every 52 minutes of an eating disorder um 27 million people in the U.S. don't have access to care, even though they have an eating disorder. Um, And, you know, 30 million people in the U.S. will have an eating disorder in their lifetime, which is larger than the population of Australia, which is 26 million. So I think about all those facts and they're obviously astounding. But then having like a story to tell, um, not, you know, I, I tell my sister's story in relation to eating disorders. But I also tell my story, um, which came after, a lot of it came after um, I started working on helping, you know, raise awareness about eating disorders um, and start talking about my story, which is I am fat, I live in a fat body and the discrimination that I experience as a fat person. Um, and that kind of enlightenment came a little bit later. I think eating disorders are a little bit more of an accessible topic, even mm-hmm. though they are so complicated and confusing for most, for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
but I can go into the rest of my story. Yeah, no, I mean, I, that's, I'd love to hear it if you're willing to share. That's why I'm having you on because I think you have such important information and uh, great messages to, to share with people that need to hear everything you have to share. So please. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, so when I was in college, I started attending conferences. I started this club, got to know a lot more, even more people who had eating disorders were in recovery started reading a lot, attending webinars, just educating myself, really. And um, I attended one of the last years of school. I attended a workshop on fat phobia. Um, and it gave me a name. I was able to name this issue that I had been struggling with for my entire life. Mm -hmm. So for those who don't know, um, fat phobia is, oh, now I'm going to have to do it off, off of memory. I didn't bring up the, the definition. So fat phobia is discrimination based on weight or size of your body, uh, of people's bodies, um, which shows up interpersonally. Um, like if I was talking to another person and they said something mean about my body, but it also um, shows up systemically. So um, fat people make $1.25 less an hour uh, than their thin counterparts in the same, um, for the same job with the same qualifications. 90% of emergency rooms don't have equipment like scanners that can accommodate people in larger bodies. Um, and so much more there it's like 81 percent of dietetic students um have biases against people in fat bodies so there's there's a lot of systemic issues it's not just like oh i feel hurt by one person it's my actual opportunities as a person are being um lessened i'm i'm don't have as much access to opportunities um, economically or socially. And um, in addition, having like less access to physical spaces, you know, not having space um, on airplanes to sit or um, feeling uncomfortable in, you know, a car um, or even just in, you know, in booths at, um, restaurants and so all of this I kind of like found out about and mm. as a fat person I felt so validated I was like wow it's not just something I'm feeling and like I feel it's it's real it's there are facts and research based on weight stigma fat phobia other people have experienced it. I found a community of other people who had experienced it. And, um, and all of this relates back to eating disorders because in my view, fat phobia as a systemic issue is um, very related to why a lot of people have eating disorders. The focus on the ideal body, um, obviously, eating disorders are more than just what your body looks like. And it often isn't all about that, but it's more of like 
what psychologically have we been taught um, to believe about that is true about fat people and what is true about not fat people? And even if it's not about the body, um, if you, you know, if someone who has an eating disorder doesn't want to be in a fat body, it might not be because they don't want to be fat based on like the physicality of it, but it might be because they see, you know, underneath all the surface, they might see how fat people are treated and um, not want to be treated poorly because fat people are treated really poorly in our society. So um, I, I have found that through my sister's story and now finding my place in the community through my own story, I've been able to, you know, find a place in the world that feels right for me. I'm straddling the line between, you know, teaching and educating about eating disorders to my knowledge and sharing my sister's story as well as body liberation and fat phobia and about one of the causes, I believe, of eating disorders. When it's, I love that you said that you found your, you know, you're finding a space where you feel comfortable because I think that a lot of people maybe listening who can relate to lots of things that you're saying don't, they don't find a comfortable space. And so I'm wondering if anyone is listening going, well, how do I find that for myself? Like, what are some suggestions you might have? That's a super great question. And I'm not going to lie, it can be hard. And and if you feel like difficulty um, in finding a community or a place, no matter what point you are at in your life, it's really valid and it's really common. Um, we are lucky in some, in some ways that we have these digital platforms that can help build community um, and at least expose us to different types of uh, content and different types of people. So the first thing that I did was start following a lot of people that looked like me, um, at least in body size. And so I was surrounded by, in my virtual space, surrounded by people who were at different levels of comfortability with their bodies, but weren't bashing their bodies or making themselves feel bad, at least virtually, of course, we all show a different side of ourselves on um, on social media. But the first place I would do it is just the easiest. Um, yeah, social media is the easiest way. Follow, you know, you can go to my social media. It's at the body activist. And um, you can follow people that I follow or, you know, go through the profiles and follow other people who follow someone that you already follow you like um, and really getting unfollowing the people who make you feel like shit and um, and who you know they might not be doing anything wrong but if they make you feel bad just by your own experiences and your own feelings about what they look like or what they're representing it's okay to protect your space um, and then in person, I really was able to connect with people from online um, at conferences and um, like retreats and that sort of thing. Going to, I know those are not necessarily very accessible for everybody, but that's how I've 
gotten into contact with a lot of other fat activists in my community. Um, and what's really cool is that we now have Zoom that is more accessible or FaceTime so people can just hop on a call and get to know people and be like, are you experiencing this? And like, yeah, I think I am. Or I experienced something different. Um, writing about it can be really helpful, obviously. Um, but also not only writing about it, but sharing writing, you know, brings people into the fold of what you're experiencing. Um, and just spending time with people who make you feel good, like your friends and and your family, if that's who makes you feel good. And if not, like choosing other people or being really precious and safe and protective of your, your safe space, because that's something that I've been working on. I, for example, I'm probably going to be getting a new therapist, not because my therapist is bad, but because my therapist is a, uh, a thin woman who doesn't necessarily um, relate to some of my experiences. And so identity affirming like care is really helpful um so I'm I'm going to be looking for a fat therapist who if they even if they can't understand they might be able to empathize a little bit easier um and bring some new perspective to that so those are some ideas I think off the bat <laughs> those are great ideas <laughs> so I think you know it can be hard to navigate especially just coming off the pandemic where people were more isolated um you know it's hard to kind of navigate how to connect with um people and community and so um great information um and I'm glad you're on the you know I found you obviously on social platform and you know saw your great message out there and I mean I wouldn't have found you otherwise so right yeah. I mean, um, for, you know, as much as there are some evils of social media, <laughs> you know, there's, there's good parts to it too. Um, so I'm curious your take, do you, you know, I think a lot of um, times there's this negative connotation or these negative thoughts about what images are out there on social media and how it perpetuates you know, like that thin ideal and things like that. Are you finding that um, maybe it's shifting a little bit or getting better or what What do you think? Oh, that's, that's a good question. Um, I think as individuals, like individuals are starting to, some individuals are starting to understand and be able to access a lot more diverse content, but Unfortunately, there are algorithms and um, con like content creators and not only individuals, but entire systems that are like so social media platforms that are built and make money off of pro-eating disorder content. So there's one company that is pretty well known um, that makes $230 million a year off of pro eating disorder content. And so in my mind that, that has erased some of the hope that I have. Um, but I think, you know, the reason that that is, is so troubling for me is because no matter how much someone who is media literate and who knows how, you know, is, is, aware of how they feel when certain posts come up and they're like, no, thank you. Or they 
block certain places or they report diet ads or those sorts of things, no matter how much we as individuals are able to try to protect ourselves, there are bigger powers at play that are trying harder to um, harm us. And I don't, I, I, it feels really like distant to me for as far as understanding why they do that, except for the fact that they make money off of it. And um, as it's, you know, kind of a, an, a branch off of the diet industry of, you know, billions of dollars it says made by the diet industry. And so of course they're, they see how well business-wise um, that is doing. And so maybe they want to make money. Um, but me as, you know, an activist and someone who works for a nonprofit, it's really hard to understand why anyone would do that. And um, there are, what gives me hope is that there are legislative or, you know, advocacy bodies that are working with legislation statewide um, within certain states and then federally as well to um, charge and essentially fine social media companies for doing this sort of thing um, and making it illegal, especially for kids. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a there's a Kids Online Safety Act that is currently, we're hoping to pass um, federally and that will fine companies that do this as well as requiring them to um you know be able to set limits and things on social media and um a bunch more things but i i find it difficult as an individual to you know there is so much hope. what what i'll say is there's so much hope in individuals like if i sit down and have a conversation with someone about these issues about eating disorders and I'm like, this is what you can do to help improve your body image or like to help improve how you feel about bodies in general by like following social media and surrounding yourself with good people and reading these books about how body image intersects with racism and fat phobia and all these things. There's individuals are so beautiful and that they will they, you know, they might not listen to you right away and they might not even agree with you, but they, they heard you and they might have, you know, a niggling thing in the back of their brain that, wow, this is an issue. Um, but, and of course, there's been an increase in plus size models, for example, or racial diversity in companies. But unfortunately, what I see um as kind of a seasoned person in this kind of catching the eye of especially body diversity is a lot of it feels very performative um, and doesn't logically make sense from a capitalistic standpoint of if you actually provide clothing for bigger people and you show them in your ads, it logically makes sense that because 65% of the U- of U.S. women are Plus, considered plus size that you'll make more money um so i i just wish you know the body activists my company is about bringing awareness to other companies and organizations about not only their internal practices of how hiring and firing and like potential discrimination or anti-discrimination 
based on body size, but also um, I'm I work for I'm I'm a marketing manager at an eating disorder nonprofit, and what I do in marketing is kind of analyze what is the least you know harmful or what it can actually be helpful to people in marginalized communities or who have been marginalized and so um I would like to in the future be someone who companies can come to talk to and who I can educate but also direct to other people within my field who are more experienced on the impact of racism and body image and the impact of um, gender affirming health care or not having gender affirming health care and disability and all of those things. Um, I, I hope to see a world that um, where companies that have so much power don't harm people unintentionally or intentionally. Mm-hmm. Great. I love, I love that you're doing this work, right? It's so needed. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's been the biggest thing as women or men, whoever, like looking, uh, you know, to add these big companies and that's perpetuates, you know, the norm and what's ideal. And so if they have somebody like you, they can go to, um, you know, that's where change starts. So really appreciate all this great work you're doing and all this information, you know, that you're sharing here. I'm sure most people have no idea. There's all this money behind it and these, influence behind everything they're seeing I mean mean, some awareness but not to the extent that you just shared I mean that's huge yeah and I just found out the 230 million dollar number last month and I've been telling everybody because it is really important information to know um yeah. I did not even know that's not you. When you said that, I don't know if you saw my, you can't see listening, but my jaw dropped down. What? <laughs> that's wow. <laughs> I mean, I knew the diet and beauty industry is like $76 billion in profits, but that, what you just shared is yeah, shocking and aggravating and all sorts of feelings I have, but blah. <laughs> yeah. I think one of the biggest and hardest things as an activist is to recognize the systemic issues and then find power and hope in doing as much as we can Um, and knowing that we're part of a bigger movement, not just individuals, not just small communities, not just the U.S., but a huge movement that has been going on for centuries um, or at least decades uh, since the 1960s and will keep going on until people, you know, understand and actually make real change. Mm-hmm. And I think there's so much power in, you know, people, like you said, sharing what they experience because then you don't feel alone. You don't feel like you're the only one. And it's, it's like, oh, this is, this is a thing. This is something, this is not right. Um, and so I do appreciate so much you coming on here and sharing your journey, your story, and giving so much information. And, you know, now you've given, you know, more information to more people. So, you know, maybe they'll share some too, and they'll hopefully come and follow you and, um, you know, you'll get more information out to more people. That is how it works. So, um, so again, just to remind people, if they do want to come find you, follow you, um, how can they do that? Yeah. Um, my name is Serena Nangia. If you 
want to follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, it's at the body activist. And um, my website is www.thebodyactivist.com. I also love to connect with people on LinkedIn. Feel free to message me. Um, and uh, yeah, that's it. And if you didn't get that down, it'll be in the show notes. So uh, don't worry, it's going to all be there with the link. So Serena, thank you so much. You are a pleasure. And thank you for doing all this fantastic, wonderful work you're doing. Much needed. Appreciate it. This podcast is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information in regards to the subject matter covered. It is given with the understanding that neither the host, the publisher, or the guests are rendering legal, accounting, clinical, or any other professional information. If you want a professional, you should find one.